This week I have a long overdue eye appointment and um, I've needed glasses since I was in junior kindergarten and uh, I kind of really don't really know life uh, apart, don't really remember life apart from wearing uh, glasses, but I'm more and more dependent on them than I ever have before. And one of, the, one of the ways that my parents understood that I needed glasses, this is often what happens, especially with boys, is at particular times where there was a visual learning that was taking place, there's often misbehavior, uh, where something was being written on the blackboard, or I was supposed to look at a picture, but I couldn't really see it, and so I just started goofing off, uh, because it didn't, make any, it didn't make any sense to me. Um, and, and we often see, uh, academically, uh, uh, with, with little boys, once they're able to see uh, clearly, uh, they're actually able to, to follow what the teacher is, is trying, to, uh, trying to do in the, in the classroom. You know, uh, the promises of God are a little bit like uh, having the right lenses in your glasses. Uh, if you view life through the lens of the promises of God then things kind of make sense. The instructions make sense. The, the commands make sense. But when we try to view what God wants us to do, but we don't have the right lenses on, if we're looking through the lens of, of legalism or if we're looking through the lens of just sort of humanist philosophy, unless we see clearly the commands through the proper lenses, we won't actually be able to obey it. And that's what we see in, in this passage this morning from Genesis chapter 22, Abraham has been giving, given an, a really an impossible command, isn't he? And, and how, what is it that enables him to obey? It's, it's that he's looking through the lens of God's promise. The title for today's message is The Lord Will Provide. And uh, if you're taking notes today, I don't always uh, do this, but I think with today's message, it would be helpful. This is sort of the, the big idea or the thesis statement for uh, today's message. It's this, that unless we believe God's everlasting promises, we won't obey God's most demanding commands. Unless we have the lens on of looking at the promises of God and through the promises of God, viewing the commands that, that he, he makes of us, we, we will not be able to obey. The only thing that enables Abraham to obey in this story is that he was clinging to the promise that God had made him concerning, concerning his offspring. This is a very difficult passage uh, so let's, let's pray together for, uh, for God's help as we, as we dive in here. Heavenly Father, there is uh, so much here in Genesis chapter 22. Uh, there, is, there are so many questions that I still have uh, about this passage. Uh, there are so many things that we really cannot completely understand. We trust you with those things. But Lord, there are many things in this passage that are very clear and especially as New Testament believers, where we have the entire revelation of your will from, from Genesis to, uh, uh, to Revelation, Lord, we, we have the whole picture. And so we thank you for the answers that, that we have that maybe even the original readers might not have had or understood completely. 
And so, Lord, I pray for your help. I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit right now in the communication of your word and also in the receiving of your word. God, we pray for your help and for your grace. Lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to divide the, the passage into uh, three parts today. The first one begins in verses 1 and 2. Uh, look with me at verse 1 and 2 again. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. The story begins really with an, with an unimaginable command. That uh, th- th- this command would have completely uh, blindsided uh, Abraham. Uh, it, it, it's unimaginable. He, he never would have saw this coming, waiting for, for a, a quarter century for this son to finally be born. And then having the, the painful loss of, of, of sending Ishmael away. And, and now, he, now, it, now Isaac is, is growing into a young man and God makes this demand of him. There are really four reasons that, that, that make this passage or this particular command so unimaginable for me. That there's four reasons. I'll walk you through them here on the screen. Here are the four reasons. If you don't know, the tall one is Ezra, and then in descending order, Jethro, Abel, and Boaz. As a a father, I cannot imagine being asked to do this. This is why I struggle with this passage. I just just want to lay it all out on the table at the very beginning. When I read just about any other story in the Bible, Peter walking on the water, I could picture myself getting out of the boat and and putting my foot down. Let's try this. Why not? I could picture myself even as a going up against Goliath with a sling and a couple of stones. I could picture myself in many stories that are difficult and challenging for the people of God in which they're called to obey. I could picture myself doing that. I can't picture myself taking one step towards Moriah. But somehow, in some way, Abraham was able to look at the character of God and the promises of God, and through that lens, he was able to follow this unimaginable command. And there's nothing parallel to this story Anywhere else in the Bible, there's nothing like this. There's no other demand put on any other follower of God that comes even close to this. And we know that Abraham, we know how the story ends. He doesn't go all the way. But even for those three days of thinking that he was going to have to do this, even understanding the promises, it's just, it's absolutely unimaginable. But we're told right from the outset that, that this was a test. That God had, had, had orchestrated this to test 
Abraham. And again, for the original audience, they would have understood this. They had a test as it related to water in Exodus chapter 15. They had a test as it related to bread and manna in Exodus chapter 16. When God appeared at Mount Sinai and gave them the Ten Commandments with the thunder and the lightning, Moses said, this is a test. You're not going to be consumed by the wrath of God, but God is revealing himself in his glory right now to to test, to show, are you going to respond with reverence and humility and obedience? They were familiar with testing. In fact, the whole 40-year wilderness period is described as a test. The people of God knew about testing. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, it says, You shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. So the people of God were familiar with this idea of being tested by God. And Abraham here is being tested in the same way. Will he follow God's command? The the command here, though, is is the test. He says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Let me break down the Hebrew word order. Do you see how how descriptive it is? Your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. He's described in four ways. In Hebrew, the name Isaac actually comes at the very end. And so take your son. Okay. We already know who that is. Then it says, your only son. So, okay, it's very clear who we're talking about. Whom you love. Of course I love him. Isaac. Yes, yes, Isaac. But this is setting the tone for what's going to happen all throughout this narrative. Is at certain points, there's way more detail than necessary. Why? Why does it mention Isaac? Why does it describe him four different ways? Because Moses, the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is is trying to give us a window into how Abraham would have felt about this command. Your only son. You might be wondering, well, what about Ishmael? Well, that that phrase, only son, refers to someone who has the the firstborn privileges of, of the inheritance. And so, Ishmael has been cast out in chapter 21. And God told Abraham that it's through Isaac that Abraham's name will will continue. And then he says, go, in verse 2, take your son, your son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. He tells him to go, and then he says, and I'll tell you the, the specific place. Does that sound familiar? Abraham being told by God, go, and by the way, I'll fill in the, the specific details about the location later. This is really the last story in, in, in Abraham's life. The, 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 the narrative now is going to begin to focus on Isaac. Let's remember how the, the Abraham story began. In Genesis 12, he was told to go. 
And he was told to go to a land, and God said, I will show you. And then in Genesis 22 now, at the end of the Abraham saga, and everything that's happened in between, it's, this is functioning like bookends of the story. Go to the place that I shall tell you. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham really is being called to go, but in going, he's, he's being called to leave behind his past, right? His family, his kindred, his homeland. In Genesis chapter 22, he's being told to go, but he's not leaving behind his past, is he? He's offering up his future. He's offering up his hope. He's offering up Isaac, his son. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham had pretty much nothing. No family, no kids, you know, and he's just, he's just an average, everyday sort of a guy. He, 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 he had nothing, and so he went, trusting that God would give him something, offspring and land and blessing. So in t- chapter 12, he has nothing, and God promised him something. In Genesis chapter 22, he no longer has nothing. He has something. He has Isaac. It's one thing to trust God to give you something when you have nothing, It's a whole other story to trust God with the something that he has already given you. But the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And he says to offer him as a burnt offering. Again, the original audience would have understood this is is a test. God has made it it clear uh, in his word uh, that child sacrifice, that human sacrifice in any way, shape, or form, even though that was common in the world in which the people of Israel uh, were living, this was not what God wants as worship. He says in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, verse 10, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. This was a common practice, the lowercase false gods, lowercase g gods, in the Old Testament time, regularly required child human sacrifice. So the people of Israel, they know God is consistent. They know that God could not really want Abraham to do this. They understood, again, that this was a test. You know, every six months or so, you know, everyone's cell phone makes a weird sound and buzzes and and everyone turns and looks and what does it say? "This This is a test. This is a test of the Ontario government or the Canadian government's emergency response. Everyone's, it was a test. It wasn't a real emergency. It was, it was a test. Those of us who are old enough to re- remember watching, you know, TV on an antenna or through cable, uh, every once in a while, right, the TV would go blank and hear that beep, and then it would, it would sort of say, this is a test. And again, It didn't mean that there were airplanes with bombs flying overhead. It it was a test of what to do if, if that were to happen and how we would respond. God does not want Abraham to offer his son. It is a test. It's like a it's like a fire drill at school. The school's not on fire, but the fire alarm goes, right? And then everyone gets out of the school. It's a test. So the original audience would have understood that. We understand that, but we got to remember, Abraham doesn't understand that yet, which is what makes this passage so difficult. It's a test of whether we will trust that God is good, even when the path before us is hard. 
is to trust that God has a plan even when the way that he's working seems so confusing. It's to trust that God is consistent even when his actions seem inconsistent. It's, it's a test. So it starts with an unimaginable command. And secondly, we see Abraham's unwavering obedience. His unwavering obedience. I just, I can't believe how he responds in verse three. So Abraham rose early in the morning, I, probably because he couldn't sleep all night. He rose early in the morning. And then this is, a, notice here what the narrator does. He rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went. You see how things slow down? What Saddled his donkey? Is that really important? <laughs> Is that an important detail? Cutting the wood? It's like, you know when you got to do something really difficult? And maybe it's like write a term paper or something like that. And you've been procrastinating. You don't want to do it. And so what do you do? You clean your room. You sharpen all your pencils. You respond to every email. You shave. You, ha- you, you have a shower. You call your mother because you haven't talked in a long time. You get all of these. It's almost like Abraham's like, okay, I'm going to saddle the donkey. I'm going to double check every buckle and tie. And he's almost like he's waiting for some sort of interruption, some sort of announcement that the whole thing has been canceled. Like it's just, it's got to be over. No, he's saddling the donkey, he's cutting the wood, he's kind of looking over his shoulder, he's, he's, he's waiting. Is God going to interrupt this whole process? It just slows right down. So you can, you can picture all that's going through Abraham's mind. And it, it's really beautifully written because we don't know what's going on in Abraham's mind. Remember back in, uh, uh, back in chapter 21, when the whole Ishmael thing was happening, it said, this displeased Abraham, that, that he was upset about it. But here we have, we have no window into the emotion that Abraham is feeling. And I think that there's, there's no words to describe how Abraham was feeling is because there's no words to describe. Like there literally are no words. How, how could you actually express what Abraham would have been feeling at this moment? Also, this is kind of out of character from, for, for what we know about Abraham. Maybe he's just growing in his faith and his relationship with God. Because Abraham wasn't afraid to push back. Abraham wasn't afraid to, to propose, you know, plan B. He wasn't, he wasn't afraid to question. I mean, he bartered God as it related to Sodom and Gomorrah. How about 50? How about 40? How about 5? How about 10? He, he, there was multiple times where he advocated for Ishmael. God, can you just let Ishmael walk before you? But here, he doesn't debate. He doesn't barter. He doesn't question. He just gets up and saddles his donkey. So they get get to the, verse 4 says, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. 
So they, they were in Beersheba. They're traveling to Moriah. It's about 80 kilometers. Uh, people can walk somewhere between 20, uh, 30 and 40 kilometers uh, per day. Remember, Abraham's an old man at this point in time. Kind of like be walk, you know, walking from here to, to Newmarket. Uh, so it, it, it would take two or three days setting up camp uh, in between. A three-day journey. Again, sometimes when we have something difficult to do, we, we want to get it over with. But again, according to God's plan, <laughs> Abraham had three full days to think about this. Three full days of conversation with his beloved son and the, the two other travelers that, that, that were with them. Three full days to, to, to think, you know what, maybe we should just turn around. Three full days just to back out. But he keeps going. And there's, there's so much that we don't know. I mean, what did Sarah think? Did he even tell Sarah? I mean, he didn't really tell Isaac. What, what, how was Abraham feeling in all of this? We, we just don't know. But we're given this key clue about the lens through which Abraham was viewing this unimaginable command, which led to his unwavering obedience. Look at, look at verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. It comes through crystal clear in Hebrew, just the way that Hebrew verbs work. It's not crystal clear in English, but it's clear enough. Do you notice that the verbs go worship, and come again, what nouns are connected to those verbs? I and the boy. I and the boy will go. I and the boy will worship. I and the boy will come again. Abraham is expecting to go up Mount Moriah with Isaac and he is expecting to come back down Mount Moriah with Isaac. The author of Hebrews, again in the New Testament we have the, the advantage of, of the author of, of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit giving us insight into what Abraham was thinking, the lens through which he was viewing these commands. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring by name. And this is key. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So for your own future reference, 
Take a pen, write Hebrews 11, 17 to 19 in the margin of your Bibles besides Genesis chapter 22. So the next time when you've long forgotten this sermon, the next time you're reading your Bible and you're like, what on earth is going on here? Remember the nouns and the verbs and remember what Hebrews 11, 17 to 19 say. It was through the lens of God's promise Isaac can't die because he's the promised child. It's through him that my offspring is to be named. It's through him that there's a mighty nation that's going to rise up. So even if I were to offer him, God must be planning on resurrecting him because God can't contradict his promises. He can't go against his promises. That's the lens through which I'm viewing this unimaginable command. But then comes the excruciating question from Isaac. And again, notice how Moses, the author, lays out and underlines the, again, repetition, re-emphasis of things we already know. Look at at verse 6. It says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they both went on, both of them, they went both of them together. Look at this question. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. So before the question even gets there, Isaac said to Abraham, yeah, we know, we know who, there's only two of them left. I, he could have just said, said to him, but no, said to Abraham, Which Abraham? Some other random Abraham? No, no. Abraham, his father. And then what's the first words out of his mouth? My father. This seems redundant, isn't it? And then Abraham says, here I am, my son. Why all of this repetition? Because he's emphasizing this is a father-son relationship here. And, and, and the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the narrator is, is laying that out, underlining that, highlighting it, all capitals. This is a father and a son. Can you even imagine? And then here comes the question. In verse 7, he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? In verse 8, Abraham simply says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will provide. Then they come to the place in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told them, again, notice how the narrator slows everything down here. Abraham built the altar there. And laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. You got to imagine that that was the sturdiest, strongest, most well-balanced altar that was ever built. Every stone being inspected. Again, you just imagine Abraham just delaying And delaying, oh, that stone's not quite right. Let's move this one over here. It's not quite level. And then getting the wood. It says that he laid the wood out in 
it's all going to burn, Abraham. Just, just get the wood. I'll just throw the wood on the rocks. This isn't a complicated thing. No, he lays the wood out in order. And then there's this whole part about Abraham binding Isaac. So Abraham's way north of 100 years old. We know Isaac's old enough to carry wood. Sarah's going to die 37 years after uh, Isaac was born in the next chapter. So Isaac is somewhere between like 14, 15 years old. The oldest he would be would be 37. It's humbling when you, when you as a father... Like I used to, my, my son loves, loves to run track and cross country. We used to run together. It was like three years ago where I realized that he was just running slowly so that he could run with dad. <laughs> and I don't think he would really, like when, if I were to wrestle, Ezra and I haven't wrestled, he's my oldest. We haven't wrestled like recently and I think that's more just out of him not wanting to embarrass me. Because I look at him and I look at me. I, I, he could take me. And, and I'm not 100 plus years old. And so I don't know. I don't know how all of this happened. Again, we're not, there's so many questions here. But Isaac clearly being stronger. Clearly being faster if he wanted to juke and run away. Allows himself to be bound by his by his father. And after he binds him, again, look at this detail, just slows down. It says he bound him at the end of verse 9, he laid him on the altar, on top of the, yeah, we know the wood is already there, narrator. What? Just slowing things down. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to, I can't even imagine, it's unimaginable, to slaughter his son. Abraham's unwavering obedience. And then we have Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. When God called Abraham in verse 1, he said, here I am. When Isaac had a question, Abraham said, here I am. Now here you have an angel of the Lord calling to him from heaven. He says, here I am. Verse 12, he says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son. God already knew. God already knows. He doesn't test for his benefit. He tests for our benefit. God's omniscient. He's speaking merely in human terms here. But now God knows Abraham believed the promise of God and he was looking through the lens of the promise of God and because he believed the promise of God, he was able to obey God's most demanding commands. And at the last minute, all part of the plan, all part of the test, the angel calls his name. 
So we have an unimaginable command. We have Abraham's unexpected. We have Abraham's unwavering obedience. And then thirdly, we have God's unexpected substitute. God's unexpected substitute. In verse 13, after the angel speaks to him, it says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering. Notice this. Instead of his son. Instead, in the place of his son. Now the original audience would have understood this idea of an animal being sacrificed instead of a son. Because they lived through the Passover Remember, when they slaughtered the lamb on the night of the Passover, what was the idea? It was to put the blood over the doorposts so that when the angel of the Lord came to kill the firstborn son, that the blood of the animal would be seen as a sign and that God would pass over. So the people of Israel understood this idea of an animal dying instead of a son. The people of God even made it clear because God required a sacrifice. Every time a firstborn son is born, every time a firstborn animal is born, a a sacrifice was required in Exodus 13 after uh, the Passover. It says, for when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sac- this is the people of God speaking, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I shall redeem. So every firstborn animal was offered to God, but the firstborn son was redeemed, which meant an animal would pay the price for the, for the son. So the people of Israel were well aware of this idea of substitution. And then when the tabernacle was constructed, it wasn't just a sacrifice for a son, but everyone knew that whether they were a firstborn son, a man or a woman, every human being needed a sacrifice, needed a substitute. So at the door of the tabernacle, this is how they were to worship. In Leviticus chapter 1 verse 4, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him in his place to substitute, to make atonement for him. So the original audience, as they're reading the story, they would have identified with Isaac Isaac is an offspring of Abraham. The people of Israel were all offspring of Abraham. Isaac was in a place of of, of about to die. And there is a substitute animal that dies in his place. The people of Israel understood that because of their sin, they deserve to die. But God has provided this way for animals to die as their substitute. That's how the original readers would would have understood it. And then as as generations went on, 
the, the readers of the story would have seen another layer. There's multiple layers to the story. Look at verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So he gives this name, the Lord will provide. I mean, it was such an important moment in the history of Israel, such an important moment in Abraham's story, in Isaac's story, it's interesting that when he names it, he doesn't name it in the past tense. This is where the Lord provided. He names it in the future tense. The Lord will provide. That's interesting. That is what Abraham said. He said earlier when Isaac asked him, Abraham said the Lord will provide. But it was, it was future focused. And then, as you keep reading the, the Old Testament, you get to the days of Solomon where the, where the temple is going to be constructed, and what seems like a throwaway detail about where the temple is to be located, look at what it says. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So the very place where Isaac was offered, the very place where the ram was substituted for the offspring of Abraham, all of the offspring of Abraham, all of his descendants gathered at this temple on Mount Moriah for them to have their own Isaac moment. For them all to have this reminder that I deserve to die for my sin, but God has provided and God will provide. So this was God's unexpected substitute, but Abraham knew somehow that God was going to provide. Then look with me at verse 16, or verse 15, it says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and not withheld your son, your only son, that's, the, that's really the, the key phrase in this whole story. Going back to verse 2, he referred to Isaac as your only son. When the angel first appears or speaks to Abraham in verse 12, he refers to Isaac as your only son. Now again in verse 15, your only son. Remember that, your only son. He says, verse 17, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. That's just building on the previous promises, right? That his offspring, plural, will be as many as the stars or the sand. God's already promised that. He says, I'll surely do that. But then he builds on the promise and he says, And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Singular. Remember off, the word offspring, zera, is kind of like the English word moose. You know, you've got one moose or you have a group of moose. It's, it's the same. So offspring can be plural and singular. So the offspring will be as many as the, the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. But offspring, there is going to be an offspring who will possess the gates of his enemies. Now that, you know, 
In some way, that was true of Joshua. Joshua was, together with the other offspring, was able to possess the gates of all of these Canaanite cities to go into the, into the promised land. But again, this is, this is multi Layer, just, just keep reading for a minute. It says, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So this offspring is not only going to experience great victory, possessing the gates of, of his enemies, but also through that offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Again, we're going right back to Genesis 12 and the original promise, the blessing for all the families of the earth or all of the nations. You see, God is working on multiple levels here. The original audience would have understood the anguish that Abraham was going through, but they would have identified more with Isaac and celebrated that the ram had been substituted for him, that the Lord had provided And that they understood that their worship at the tabernacle and the temple was God's provision for a sacrifice for them. But God had another layer that he was working on. A layer in which we're not only just supposed to look at the ram as a substitute, but that we're supposed to look at the only son as a substitute as well. And that, that layer gets communicated probably in the first Bible verse that you ever really learned. And it's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Yes, the, the ram is a picture of God's provision on one layer, but Isaac is also a picture of God's provision. Because in order for the nations of the world to be blessed, and that's you and I, there there must be a substitution for us. And Isaac is a picture of that substitution. And And what is so troubling for me about this passage as a father is what is so astoundingly powerful and beautiful about God. Because God did what he didn't ask Abraham to do. That God went through the anguish and followed it right through to the very end. Abraham went through it as a test. God the Father went through it for real. And and we see all of these parallels in this passage. So with Isaac, he's referred to as Abraham's only son. They arrive there on the third day. Isaac is old enough to carry wood up the mountain. When Isaac asks the question, Abraham says the Lord will provide the lamb. And then there's this ultimate promise that all the nations will be blessed. And then what do we see? We see your only son in John 3, 16. God gave his only son on the third day. Do you ever notice that when Jesus was explaining things to the disciples, he said that the son of man must die and be risen on the third day according to the scriptures? What scriptures? What prophecy? 
says that the sun must rise on the third day. It's nowhere in the prophets. It's here in Genesis 22. In the same way when Paul was unpacking it to the Corinthians, he said that Christ rose on the third day according to the scriptures. It's this scripture, the third day, carrying wood. Isaac is carrying the very thing that is supposed to be used for his sacrifice up a mountain. Jesus carried the very thing that was to be used for his sacrifice, wood, across up the hill of Golgotha. Abraham said, the Lord will provide the lamb. John the Baptist set eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and said, behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, who again brings about that blessing for all nations. Loved ones, we, God provided the ram, and that's what we can learn from Genesis chapter 2, but God also provided his only son. And we are recipients of that blessing going all the way back to Genesis 12 and made so much clearer in Genesis chapter 22. This is us in Revelation chapter 7. Let's read this part, the bold part at the bottom. We'll read together, okay? So I'll, I'll set the stage. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, let's say this together, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That Lamb is the lamb that was provided, the lamb that Abraham knew, the lamb that Abraham, looking through the lens of the promise, said, this is hard what is about to happen, but God must have a plan and a purpose. It's only when we believe God's promises that we will be able to obey God's most demanding commands. And we gotta understand that when it comes to God's most demanding commands, for Abraham, this was only a test. But for God the Father, this is what really happened. He, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 